Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. David Wright from the University of Warwick about Understanding Cultural Taste, Sensation, Skill and Sensibility, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2015. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. David Wright from the University of Warwick. Um, We're going to be talking about his new book, Understanding Cultural Taste, Sensation, Skill and Sensibility, which is a fascinating new book that engages not just with cultural sociology, but with a whole different range of questions about art and culture in contemporary global society. So welcome to the podcast. Nice to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I wonder if we could kick off by um, you talking us through the kind of the process of of almost the sort of history of the book. Uh, Why were you interested in this topic and and how come you came to write this particular book? Okay, yeah. Um, Well, I think I've always been um, interested in and sort of slightly perplexed by um, issues of, of of culture, most most specifically and most kind of usually in terms of my academic career, uh, in relationship to popular culture. I, I studied um, cultural studies as an undergraduate and as and as a, initially as a postgraduate before starting a PhD in sociology. So I kind of came to the sociology of culture sort of slightly backwards uh, via via cultural studies. Uh, and I was always really in- interested in, in, in cultural studies because it kind of allowed you to kind of talk about popular culture in a, in a serious kind of way, I suppose. And it was discovering that that was the kind of spark um, for my academic career generally and, and certainly an impetus for, for this book where, where in debates about um, taste, popular culture has always had a particular kind of uh, ambivalent sort of position. I suppose those... Um, experiences kind of uh, were given particular impetus and focus from my time working at the Open University on 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 the uh, the, the project that eventually emerged as as culture class distinction with Tony Bennett and Mike Savage and Alan Ward and Elizabeth Silver and Modesto Gallo and it's, I suppose it's that experience and the various issues that it led me to think about more than anything that kind of inspired me to think about well I can maybe reconceptualize these things and put them down in a kind of focused way so that was the the principal inspiration i'd say that's really interesting because it it you can see the book kind of carries that lineage actually of you know you having engaged with a quite a variety of disciplines to to get to grips with this this Mm -hmm. question about about taste Uh, and i guess the kind of the big question that the book opens with is what is taste well, the yeah, the the kind of the the sociological sociologist response to that, the kind of scholarly response to that, of course, is that it's a complex uh, mm. phenomenon, a contested, a contested term. But um, there are also, uh, you know, in this case, elements of truth to that, and elements of the of the complexity of. I think it, the taste is variously understood as a kind of it's a kind of quality. It's a quality that people can possess. It's a kind of property that 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 might inhere in particular kinds of objects. So people and things uh, can be tasteful or have taste or be tasteless. But it's also, of course, 
a kind of a name for one of our, our primary senses. And in the try using these terms, sensation, skill and sensibility to sort of explore the relationships between all the interrelations between this kind of sensory kind of corporeal aspect of taste and its social meanings. And I think that kind of, that kind of etymology, if you like, of taste, the move from what feels good on the tongue to what is considered to be good in an aesthetic or moral or social or cultural sense is kind of helpful in, in, in revealing why taste still might matter. Yeah. Cause it, the book kind of positions taste as, as being much more important than just what people like that and kind of talks about how um, it has influences or impacts in terms of how people are formed, how people are imagined um, and, and how kind of wider social sort of stratification or patterning occurs. And I wonder if you could give a little bit of an insight into uh, the relationship between say, you know, taste and these kind of wider social issues. Well, I think what I was interested to kind of, explore a little bit and kind of um, unpack a little bit is this idea the ta- tasting kind of contemporary societies which we you know increasingly kind of uh, understand as kind of consumer societies is a kind of synonym for uh, a particular kind of choice you know or tastes are manifestations of our choices uh, and in late in, in these kinds of societies in kind of late modern consumer societies our choices are variously kind of hugely kind of loaded their significance they're the means through which we are able, you know, we're supposed to be able to kind of craft ourselves, craft our identities through the kind of skillful uh, manipulation of, of symbolic things. So the idea that our choices are kind of just a matter of taste, kind of it serves to sort of reproduce that kind of rhetoric. And it, it, it denies or it downplays the extent to which cultural sh- choices and practices might also be shaped by various forms of, uh, of inequality. So associating taste with, with consumerism, for example, ties it to a particular vision, a, vi- a particular version of the person, the consumer as a kind of particular um, type of person. And so that denies the extent to which taste might be bound up with kind of aesthetic or moral um, forms of judgment. So um, the sociology of taste in particular, the sociology of consumption more generally, I suppose, has given us the tools to kind of critique that kind of story, critique that kind of narrative. Um, if, if the kind of rhetoric of taste in, in, in um, contemporary societies is, is that what we choose defines who we are, then the sociology of taste also reminds us that we are kind of, who we are is also shaped by uh, what we choose, if you like, if you like so that we, we kind of, um, there's an influence of, a, of our social location on, on the things that we like and do. Um, and I, th- I think attention to those kind of processes is, is still important, I think. Now, obviously, the big kind of uh, theoretical player in this uh, story that you've just outlined <laughs> is, is, is Pierre Bourdieu. And yeah. so I, I'm wondering, where does the book sit in relation to his work? Well, uh, clearly you can't, as you, can, as you sort of indicate, you can't really talk about those issues uh, really without taking or without settling accounts with Bourdieu and with Bourdieu's distinction, it's still um, rightly, in my view, the kind of um, the kind of uh, the touchstone of, of the kind of field, and it, and it deserves its its place there as a kind of a as an extraordinary kind of theoretical kind of empirical achievement. 
uh, one that I think is probably more more summarised and criticised than it is read still. Mm. Um, as a as a kind of as a sociologist who finds himself working in a in a kind of arts faculty, where to a greater or lesser extent the kind of what we might term the kind of cult of culture that Bourdieu's work exposes is still kind of alive and kicking in some in some in some sense. I mean, you know, I'm sure this is the case in, in universities around the country. You know, it's, it's kind of what powers alights in some ways. In, in working in that kind of um, context, I find myself defending him more often than not. But I also think that the way distinction is kind of talked about has become a kind of orthodoxy. So I, I kind of characterise my relationship to the work really as, as, as a kind of critical, critical friend. There are some aspects, as I sort of mentioned at the start, especially in relationship to popular culture, which I find unsatisfying. I think he's got a, I think Bourdieu has a kind of a mid 20th century view of popular culture. Um, and I think it's, I think we can complicate and, and, uh, that a little bit. And there are also some critiques of Bourdieu, uh, particularly um, Jacques Rancière's critique about the role of, of the working class in Bourdieu as kind of recreating distinctions between uh, types of people, which has been kind of, has, has a long philosophical history. I find that convincing too. So I'd say, you know, broadly I'd say, whilst I'm a kind of, I don't know, a worshipper in the church of Bourdieu, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm kind of on the Anglican liberal wing of that church, <laughs> rather than you know, kind of evangelical. I would say. I must, uh, I must start using that analogy. <laughs> it's a good one. It is. Yeah. It, it works well. Uh, <laughs> if that's the kind of like theoretical uh, sort of basis for your understanding of taste, the rest of the book really engages with much broader questions. I think about uh, measurement, government, globalization, production. And then the kind of the digital yeah. revolution, and we, and we might take these in turn actually, because I think sure. they um, they relate back to um, your critical uh, friend use of Bourdieu, but also they kind of I think they extend his work quite a lot. And one way you do this is by by thinking through how taste is made kind of knowable, how it can be measured, quantified, um, and you also raise questions about whether it should be measured and quantified at all. Yeah, well, I think. I think in lots of ways, you know, it, 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 whilst I kind of go in the book, I kind of critique and unpack some of the ways in which he ha- has been um, measured and, and attempts to, 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 to kind of quantify it have been achieved. I think I do that. Critiquing those processes doesn't mean that I think the processes themselves aren't kind of important and necessary. I think taste absolutely is really or should be a kind of an empirical kind of concept. I think it's regardless of how it's empirically identified. I think concepts which can't be sort of seen and, and operationalised in some sense, however it's done, aren't much kind of use analytically. So I think it, whilst we can be have attention to the ways in which it's done, I think the process of doing it uh, is important. But referring to just using the example of, of distinction again, it's, it's easy to forget that the... That the the, the relations that it establishes between taste and class, for example, aren't just asserted or theorised. They're kind of the result of a, of a conduct of a survey and the statistical analysis of its results. Of course, there are other kind of methods too in it, and, and Bourdieu kind of sets a particular standard for a, what we might term a kind of an eclectic kind of methodological template, which probably wouldn't get through, um, you know, um, some... Uh, some more rigorous contemporary social scientific uh, understandings of those kinds of processes. 
but the survey is kind of central. This is the foundation um, of it. And that technique's clearly less fashionable now, even amongst people who are working with um, Bourdieu's kind of concepts. But it was really important for Bourdieu to be able to claim the mantle and authority that those kinds of techniques kind of brought him, even as in distinction, and I think what's really nice about distinction, even as he kind of critiques and questions them, there's a really interesting and kind of complex kind of methodological dance going on in distinction, which I find very kind of compelling, actually, and quite convincing. But the problem with the problem with um, identifying to stay on this relationship between taste and class, the problem with identifying that relationship um, statistically is that whilst the, the relationship might be, you know, relatively solid in as much as any statistical relationship can be, the categories on which it's based kind of can't be. I mean, the experience of taste is almost necessarily far more complex than answering a survey question about what you like. I mean, it's it's just a different thing. And one of one of um, again one of um, Rancière's great lines about about Bourdieu is that he, he asks questions about music without having anyone hear music. So I think that's a, I think that's a telling kind of critique of, of that of that kind of process. And at the same time, at the same time, the, the categorization of class for the benefit of a of statistical analysis of class isn't the same as the subjective experience of different class positions. So these kinds of techni- techniques, um, which we have become more sophisticated, and we're, we've become more sophisticated in responding to, to them, become part of the kind of game of culture itself. We kind of know what people like us are supposed to like. And so, you know, taste, I think, stands for, starts to exemplify some of the kind of the grander, methodological debates in, in, in sociology that, that, that how do we get to know about what people think uh, if we if we have as the basis of that asking them questions there's still there's there's a there's a it exemplifies the kind of the, the fragileness of that process I think yeah the, the, the sort of the politics of, of, of display as it were that go into kind of saying you you know or you like a particular cultural form and that I think is is quite heavily related to concepts of sort of um legitimacy um, yeah. that go you know much kind of higher or broader than the individual and give us clues about why states and governments might be might be interested in in ideas about taste and and in the third chapter you talk through ideas about how tastes might be governed and yeah. why states would be would be interested in it. and so why is that well i think in that chapter what i was trying to do is 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 um to sort of Reflect on the kind of concerns and debates that we have here within the within the, the Centre for Cultural Policy Studies about how how and in what ways culture has become a kind of focus of or a strategy for government. In terms of taste, that comes down to um, the extent to which tastes have sorry to the extent to which states have interests in what their citizens do. So it might be. Um, in relationship to something like the gathering of large-scale surveys of cultural participation, um, such as the, the taking part survey in the UK, and the way that is used in kind of to um, as evidence in, to justify the funding funding for the legitimate arts, for example. But they also have, states have other kinds of interests. They have interests in in the construction and management of kind of national cultures uh, in the light of. Um, 
you know, the, the, the uncertainties or the apparent uncertainties caused by um, processes of globalisation. So in Europe, this includes attempts to create uh, national... Uh, Government-sponsored attempts to create national cultural canons. We see that we saw in 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 Denmark, but it's also manifesting things like uh, questions about artists or writers on citizenship tests. So, if you want to be British, you should know about Jane Austen or Shakespeare, because the implication is those are the kinds of things that we like here. You know, so there's a kind of a way in which taste becomes implicated in the kind of the kind of the the um, the production of national space uh, in, in that sense. And this is related to, but I think challenged by concepts of globalization, mm. uh, both in terms of production and consumption. So, so what is the kind of the impact of globalization on taste? Well, one of the things I, one of the themes I try and, and, and develop in, in, in the book in the last uh, two or three chapters is the idea that taste sort of has a, an infrastructure that it has a, that, that there are various institutions and processes at work which are beyond this kind of individual experience of tasting if you like that sort of work to place things before us to be tasted so it might be in this in thinking about the kind of global flow of people and things you know through uh, trade or through the roots of roots of global mo- migration people and things move around the world and they take their cultural practices tastes with them. This is one of the kind of um, everyday forms of tasting might be, you know, one of the ways in which we ex- we experience kind of globalization in a kind of in a kind of everyday kind of way, in a day to day level. In what Ulrich Beck refers to as kind of banal kind of way, it's kind of unremarkable that I have access to, you know, the foods of of the world, um, but also the film, television, and music of the world. Um, living in a kind of a uh, relatively affluent city in the Midlands of, of the United Kingdom. Um, it's kind of like it shapes the things that are around for me. Those processes shape the things that are around for me to taste. Um, so those flows aren't always kind of benign, of course, and there's a kind of an unevenness um, to, the, to the geography of them, but they're clearly influential or important in shaping and reshaping taste cultures within uh, nations, certainly within the nations of, of the global north. And, and sociology, historically at least, I think, including distinction, which was, you know, decidedly and, and, and uh, unapologetically French. Um, Very much so. <laughs> this try almost necessarily has to kind of contain the social sort of patterns of taste within the nation. And I think I don't think it can necessarily. I don't think taste can be contained in those ways anymore, uh, or very easily anyway. I think it kind of leaches leaks out of that, those kind of containers. Um, and, yeah. and you identify a kind of a key facet of this, you know, sort of affluent global northern taste that's um, related to cosmopolitanism, and I think that's a really um, important insight actually because it links to you know much uh, kind of more general sociological questions about social stratification and inequalities. Now, I wonder if you could kind of unpack the idea of cosmopolitan taste for me. So, yeah, I try, try. I think one of the one of the things I try and do with the book is is to try and take some of these big things like um, globalization, like uh, cultural production, uh, like the digital uh, sphere, etc., and try, I think, well, what's taste got to do with that? 
uh, if you like, to sort of make some kind of um, connections. And so in, in, in discussing cosmopolitanism, I'm trying to make a connection with, with the, the, the emergence of that term uh, in, in social theory, the, you know, the end of the 20th, early 21st century is a kind of hopeful kind of construction of, of, of post-national forms of, of, of kind of subjectivity. Um, so taste is kind of implicated in, in, in that construction because of the impl- impl- implication of um, the openness to and the enthusiasm for the kind of the distant, the foreign and the exotic in kind of the forms of, of, of tasting which we c- can experience in uh, in contemporary kind of the contemporary society, certainly the global north. And I'd kind of, I suppose I'd, I'm keen to retain a kind of sense of uh, optimism about that, about the, the possibilities of that. And we see in um, in kind of empirical studies, certainly that there is some evidence that, that younger, younger cohorts are more outward looking in their tastes, they're less bound by national forms and styles, less attentive, less attentive to the kind of the anxieties of, of national cultural elites in kind of worrying about, um, you know, Americanization and homogenization and all those kinds of things, which we might have worried about even in the UK in the, in the fifties and sixties, for example. So I'd want to be optimistic about that, but at the same time, there's a, it's important to recognize that there's a, there's a, an, 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 an unevenness to this kind of, um, cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism, certainly, uh, in the UK, it becomes a kind of synonym for a privileged, globally oriented uh, professional class. M- maybe, um, you know, in a similar way to which the omnivore, which is another kind of figure, um, becomes a, a similar label for a kind of liber- liberal, relatively privileged um, sensibility. Constructing the experience of, of cosmopolitanism as a kind of, of universal when, you know, it, it clearly isn't yet. There are still clearly people who can't access um, uh, and don't have the kind of um, the, the, the um, required levels of capital to access and play with, with, with culture in, in, in those kinds of ways. I mean, if that's very much a kind of study or um, discussion of, of consumption practices, um, in, in the later half of the book, you, you kind of focus much more on, on questions of production. Yeah. Um, and you raise questions that are to do with expertise, um, you know, kind of strategies uh, yeah. in terms of the production of taste. And, and I think you give a really, really kind of uh, interesting and very useful uh, example of a particular um, cultural product, in this case, the lovely consensus by um, the sculptor Grayson Perry, yeah. and how that can introduce us to and, and, and stand for a lot of the uh, the questions that you have around the production of taste. So, what what is, what is the story of the lovely consensus? Well, so as you, as you say, it's a it's a it's a pot by by Grayson Perry, who I think is a, a really interesting figure in these debates, because active in these debates, very kind of powerfully articulating. Um, the kind of stories about um, the relationships between uh, taste for art and social class in a very uh, interesting and accessible kind of way. And he mentions this his um, this story in his in his in his BBC Read lectures last year. The, the lovely consensus kind of depicts the names. It's a pot which depicts the names of various art dealers and critics and gallery owners who have been influential in his, in his career. 
And he tells the story that it was in, it was being exhibited in London and it was seen by someone whose name was on it, uh, who got on his mobile phone as, 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 as such people are able to do and subsequently kind of bought it. Um, and I think he used it to kind of illustrate, um, precisely this point, but it kind of crystallized really nicely for me an idea that, that Bourdieu expresses in, in the rules of art that artists need what Bourdieu terms kind of celebrants and believers to make them artists. What's, what's, we have still kind of, um, the art world in particular kind of depends on to a, to a, to a greater or lesser extent the kind of myth of the individual genius. Well, what's that kind of remains strong? Artists require various mediating institutions around them, including actually a believing audience to kind of place them on their, on their pedestals. So they might be, um, academics legitimizing some artists by placing them on, on kind of educational curricula, for example, or it might be critics or reviewers, or it might be the kind of promotional activities of the cultural industries themselves. But all those processes, it seems to me, involve the selection between artists and producers before we even sort of get to taste them, if you like. They represent the kind of backstage, behind the curtain kind of dimensions of, of, of cultural work. At the same time, though, and, and you raised this in, in the subsequent chapter, actually, you know, we're often presented with the argument that technology has, has radically challenged the power of the backstage as, as, you know, essentially sort of, I guess the metaphor would be sort of shattered Perry's uh, lovely consensus um, and has, you know, empowered people to be um, able to choose much more directly uh, from an eclectic mix of possible um, objects, practices, experience, and also to represent their um, judgments. Uh, in some cases, it's argued um, the same way as the professionals do through, yeah. you know, uh, critical blogging or yeah. uh, comments on on media articles and these kind of things. And you're sort of, I guess, skeptical of that in in two ways. Really, one is to assert the um, strategies around the production of tastes but the other is to talk through questions of um abundance yeah. the role of uh particular forms of technology in in shaping um uh, that democratic yeah. moment in culture and then the the what you call liking culture about how yeah. people sort of interact um and i wonder if you could uh talk through those three ideas actually abundance algorithms and liking culture sure okay so in terms of abundance i suppose this partly goes back to um this notion of expertise, and as you kind of indicate, that the kind of changing kind of reviewing, the process of reviewing it, going, going from a kind of an elite practice engaged in by specialist kind of critics to it being a kind of a, a more open conversation in which um, uh, consumers, some of which, of course, can be perfectly authoritative um, uh, voices too, can kind of... Uh, open up a conversation or about, about the nature of expertise. So you can, you can get five stars, give five stars on Amazon um, to a novel by Jonathan Franson, and you can give five stars on Amazon to a kind of dishwasher. You know, you, you can, <laughs> it, it's kind of cements the relationship for better or worse between taste and consumerism. There's kind of anxiety attached to that, of course, especially for those people who were, who were in, who were in the positions of authority 
um, in the in the relatively recent past. But in terms of in terms of abundance, I suppose I, again I kind of want to be I want to try and maintain a sense of um, optimism in relationship to that. That I'm struck um, by the sheer volume of culture that is available, and one of the implicit kind of narratives of, of, of underpin, that underpins metaphors of, of, of cultural value or in, in, and indeed metaphors of cultural capital is that culture is a kind of a scarce resource whose value increases as it is kind of struggled over. Um, and I just don't think that we can easily sustain that anymore in situations when we have access to so many books in print and through the various other you know, digital giants, the vast kind of catalogues of digitalized things. Just because, of course, we have access to all this, those things, it doesn't mean that they are they are accessed. And that, but that, that's a different kind of question. There are still kind of compelling kind of input and important inequalities. But abundance, at least, has the potential to change some terms in in, in the debate. So that's kind of the optimistic side of, of me. I suppose the, the pessimistic side of me kind of sees the way in which this abundance is managed and, and, and algorithmic forms of recommendation perhaps exemplify that, that, um, that kind of process of management. How do you get to know, how do you get to choose between the, the abundance of culture? Well, of course, one of the ways in the kind of contemporary context is through these kind of machine-generated forms of big data which probabilistically predict what we like, what we will like on the future, what we will like in the future on the basis of what we liked in the past. And these can be, you know, extraordinarily uh, prescient, but they're kind of, they're also somewhat um, unexamined. You know, the assumptions that underpin them are sort of, they're not obvious to us. Um, they're part of what um, sociologists like David Beer have called the kind of hidden infrastructure of, of, of tasting. And if tasting is, is about classific- partly about classification, liking things is partly about classifying things. And, you know, sociology has, for, for better or worse, been complicit in making it partly about that. Then the ways in which we um, classify things and the ways in which they're classified through algorithms is, no, is less immediately visible to them. We can only shape the uh, or algorithms through what we buy or what we browse. And that, I think, is, a, is a, in some sense, is a kind of closing down of, of, of some of the possibilities of, of um, you know, um, the possibilities of, of, of abundant culture. In terms, of, in terms of liking, liking culture, I'm interested, I suppose, um, that on Facebook, Facebook even used the languages of liking, that it draws on the language of liking and disliking in, in its platform. It's not alone to do that in, in social media platforms. Tastes are obviously... Um, important to, central to um, social media on platforms like Facebook. When you set up a profile, you you list the books you like, the films you've read, the TV, and these profiles become a kind of a, a performance of a digital media kind of life as a form of social life, a kind of, you know, they become part of a kind of a Bedeusian kind of game in which we, you know, we perform how sophisticated or ironic we are in relationship to higher popular culture. I'm, I, I, I'm saying this because I do it. I'm not being critical of it. Um, but, but, but more interesting for me in, in terms of that is, is the way in which liking is kind of central to the business model of, of Facebook. It's kind of monetized. Uh, it, to gather all likes is, 
is absolutely crucial. So there's an extension of, of the reduction of taste to a question of consumer choice to the reduction of taste to the click of a mouse or, or the touch of a screen. Facebook, Facebook, what, what I maintain the hope of is that Facebook doesn't actually know what we like because I think what, what I try and argue through the book is that liking is, it's complex. It's, it's a complex sensory, moral, aesthetic, um, it's a bundle of all these things. Facebook really only knows what we click on. It might be that it wants to transform what we, to train us or to train us such that one stands for the other, but it's, it, it hasn't got there yet, I don't think. And, and, and uh, you know, that's, that's good news to my mind. I guess the balance of sort of pessimism and, and optimism in terms of the various ways culture is, is produced and, and consumed, it comes together in the conclusion. Um, and the conclusion, I think, raises a really interesting, um, almost sort of philosophical or, or moral point about um, how culture constitutes particular kinds of people and, yeah. and leaves me with with the thought of, of what sort of people should we aspire to be in this um, world of, of stratified um, tastes? Well, clearly anyone who thinks they can answer that question should be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what, what, I tr- what I try and do... What I try and do in the book, I think, is to remind people that taste um, isn't just about social struggle. It isn't just about social stratification. Various aspects of the of the history of the development of taste also indicate that it's kind of it's part of the process of how we, as you say, how we understand how people are formed, but also how they kind of live together. So I talk a little bit about. A similar account of the city and fashion and the kind of sensory experience of other people, and that's what's going on in, in those in those examples. I think is is part of is how people work out how to live together. Who would who would how we live with people who are different from us. Uh, similarly, um, in uh, Elias's account of kind of bodily discipline in early me- me- medieval Europe, it's a bit of a tone change. <laughs> Taste is kind of bound up. <laughs> With um, with restraint, with restraint and respect in in, in terms of our relationship uh, with others. So, thinking about taste as part, just as part of a struggle for social status, I think, cements that struggle as the kind of the primary goal and mode of, of organisation of social life. And I don't think it it has to be. Um, I'm not someone who you know. I'm someone who likes and does things. I'm not someone necessarily who thinks that because taste is is implicated in these struggles and liking and being enthusiastic for cultural things is almost inevitably, whether it's popular or legitimate forms of culture, is inevitably kind of somehow tainted. You know, if, if taste is part of the game of culture, I think, then, you know, we can play it and win or lose, or we can kind of work out how we how we change the rules. And I think there's, 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 there's scope for, you know, a more... Uh, a, understanding taste as a way of negotiating how we live together rather than taste as a kind of struggle. Yeah, re- reflecting that kind of optimistic story you try and yeah. tell with the book. Um, I wonder, are you doing um, kind of even more stuff on, on taste and cultural consumption? Because obviously you've got uh, quite a bit of a, of a history in, in this field now. Um, and will you be kind of taking new projects forward on this or are you, you kind of working on completely different things at the moment? Well, I'm sort of, I'm sort of between, I'm between projects. 
as the uh, as the musicians would say. <laughs> Rep- as the actors would say. Um, I think I'm kind of I'm thinking about um, a couple of aspects of it. Actually, I'm interested in in the kind of um, in in thinking about certainly the, the kind of digitalized digitalizing aspects of the digitalized aspects of taste and this idea of digital cultures being a kind of a a kind of a way of reimagining the person uh, as a kind of a, a bundle of variables that can be organized through various kind of um, algorithmic modes and, and what that means for things like cultural policy, for example. That's an, there's an interesting kind of story to be told there about that developing kind of strategy of, of government, if you like. So um, that emerges from the book, uh, uh, and I'm keen to develop that. I suppose I'm also interested in... in in the kind of the cultural taste and specifically in the policy realm where it's, it is wedded to these notions of participation and engagement and what they mean uh, both to the people who are um, kind of participating in the, and engaging, I suppose, but also to the people who work in those fields and what they're, what they're aiming to achieve, what the kind of ethics of, of, of that kind of work is. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at those things for projects for the future, I think. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. David Wright from the University of Warwick about his book, Understanding Cultural Taste, Sensation, Skill and Sentiment.